Sarah and I are back with you all, and, and I'm uh, honored to, to do so. This one got brought forward a bit. Um, could you somebody, actually, Angie, could you give that to Victor on the video desk in case it helps him this morning so you can see where I'm going? Um, yes. So I'm starting a few weeks earlier on a series on the covenant of grace. And I could have chosen otherwise and made it easier on myself because this is a subject which I've been kind of running around in my mind for a few years and I've read a couple of books and I I thought when I retire I'll sit down and I'll really study that but then I thought well if I'm studying I might as well turn it into a sermon series and bring it to. So I've had to read and research and study thoroughly to put this first one together and then further ones too. I'll probably look back later on this week or in coming weeks at these notes. And um, By the way, there are some notes here for afterwards, if anyone wants them. Um, and wish that I could have a bit good and better go at this. I mean, every preacher feels like that. You know, when you finish preaching, you think, oh, I didn't say that. Or, Why did I say that? But um, here goes. Let's pray. Lord, we submit ourselves to the help of the Holy Spirit who inspired scripture, who inspires preachers, to inspire every one of our hearts to receive your word. It, talk, it talks about with meekness in scripture, like, like a baby suckling his mother's milk. We want to receive truth from you, Lord Jesus, by your spirit today. May you, Lord Jesus, be honored. Amen. The covenant of grace. There is really one covenant of grace. Now, I know there are different covenants in the Bible. We'll be looking at those, but they really are parts of a progressive unfolding of God's covenant of grace until it finally ends up with, guess who? Thank you. Someone is awake. (laughs) With Jesus, who's the complete fulfillment of God's covenant of grace towards us as fallen human beings. The covenant of grace runs from before the beginning of time to beyond the end of time as we now know it. What I'm talking about is God's eternal purpose and process of showing grace and blessing to us. It's implemented over time as the Lord made a series of covenants with men which formed together his purpose of redemption and blessing. There are other covenants mentioned in Scripture, but these are the ones that are the main ones we need to focus on, I think. And the covenants relate to a particular partner. God chose someone with whom and through whom he made the next covenant in the series. First of all was Adam, then Noah, then Abraham, then Israel, or Moses, you might say, because it was made through Moses. Then David, an eternal kingship was promised to David. And then, of course, Jesus, the Messiah, our king, our high priest, our savior, who brought in the new covenants. And so these covenants are markers in the continuing purpose of God to redeem a people to himself. And they form also a backbone to the narrative of Scripture. Understanding these six covenants gives us an overview of the whole of Scripture, for they add together over time to reveal God's grace until it's fully and finally revealed in his eternal Son made man, Jesus. These covenants are the heart of the prophetic scriptures, the basis of what God says to us, because the Lord is affirming his word, his promise, through prophecy. It's on the basis of what he's already said in his promises that there is prophecy. And his uh, covenant promises are sealed by oath. God puts his name on them. 
I hope to show you along the way that even the giving of the law through Moses was a part of this administration of grace and not a deviation from his purpose. Let me say this is a long way from dispensationalism, which is what was thrown at me when I was a young Bible student. It's taught in the Schofield and, uh, and Ryrie and Dake study Bibles. It was pretty much the mainstream stuff when I was around uh, as a young man. That system treats God's purposes as switching direction repeatedly through seven different eras or dispensations and carves the Bible about, no, that's not about us, it's about them, and that's not about us, it's about them, and so on. So that even, uh, some of dispensations would say, even the Sermon on the Mount isn't about us, it's, for, it's the law for the Jewish people during the millennium under the kingship of Jesus. So I never signed up to that system of handling the Bible. It's also been common and this is something I've had to really look at hard. It's also been very common historically, if people talk about God's covenant, being conditional or unconditional. Well, I'm telling you today, we have to ditch that. There are things in God's covenants which he places upon himself and have nothing to do with us. But there are other things that God places upon us and we have to make a response. There are, right, there are responsibilities. There are obligations to God's covenant partners. So, all the covenants which the Lord made towards the program... I'm having to read from my notes with, without my glasses so they're big and they're double-sided and the printer didn't quite work today. Um, all the covenants that God made towards the completing his covenant grace have partners, God and men, in partnership. Yet the human partners of God's covenants aren't being paid for their work. They're not earning wages. They're not earning a reward. From the beginning to the end, his covenants were given by his grace and they received and obeyed through faith. Covenant partners, we obey him and keep his covenant and his word or his commands. Those who don't act in faith and obedience to the Lord are covenant breakers. Which brings us to the first covenant breaker, Adam. I have to run now quickly through a couple of chapters of Genesis this morning, and I can only highlight a few verses, so I'd recommend that you find some time, some time today, this week, read through Genesis 1 to 4, or even chapter 5 as well, so you, you pick up this before Noah in a few weeks' time. And I have to leave some things out that I would love to say, but there isn't time, and they're not central to what I'm saying here this morning, so excuse me if I put my uh, trainers on and run now, Okay. God made man, male and female, and by the way, whenever we say usually man with a capital M, or we talk about later on sons of God, that is gender inclusive. Galatians says both male and female are sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. All right? Amen. Good. Chapter Genesis 1 and 2 give two accounts of creation. You may have noticed that. They're a little bit different. Well, it's because the first is an overview, perhaps from heaven's view, of, of the initial creation of heaven and earth, because God said, the Scripture says, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And then it says that was the end of the first day. So the very beginning was the creation of heaven and earth. Or, as we'll see later, the scripture phrase, the foundation of the earth. So it's from heaven's perspective. But then chapter 2 
doesn't take us through the six days, but focuses in on Adam and Eve and how God made them and how situated them and what he made them to be and to do. So that's Genesis 2. So God made man in his image, Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our, after our likeness. God was going to make man as something that was rather like himself, like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and all of the earth itself and every creature that crawls on it. And then this phrase is repeated and repeated three times. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Image, image, image. He created, he created, he made. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every creature that crawls on the earth. And then the next verse says, and I'm not going to put it up there, but God, then God said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the face of all the earth, every tree that is fruit contains seed. They were yours for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and every creature that crawls on the earth, everything that has breath in, of life in it, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. Back then, everybody was a vegetarian. God made man, Adam and Eve, to bear his image and to rule creation as his image bearers. God placing authority on man to do on earth what God wanted done. In other words, to be God's covenant and kingdom partner, to bring order to his creation. God made Adam and Eve and set them in his garden temple of creation. Not quite Eden, it's within Eden. Eden was a high place, we're told that, because four rivers flowed from there. Well, rivers flowed up downhill, don't they? So it was a high place, like a high plateau, perhaps. And the garden in which the Lord placed Adam and Eve was on the east side of Eden. Okay? Eden was not the whole garden. The garden was a part, a special part of Eden. Since the garden was where the Lord met with Adam and Eve. It was the Lord's dwelling place with them. And the whole pattern of here's, a, here's a, some, some sort of surrounding area and then over the, here's this little part of it on the east side is exactly the pattern of the tabernacle in Exodus or the temple of Solomon. What we're looking at here is the garden was God's open air temple where he was worshipped and he communed and related with Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve were rulers and they were also priests serving the Lord. We tend to think of creation at that time as being tame. But listen again to the instructions the Lord gave to Adam and Eve. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule over it and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that crawls upon it. If every creature on earth was tame and domesticated. Oh, there you go. There's the lion again. Good fellow. If every creature to begin with was tame and domesticated, where does the ruling subduing come in? God had given Adam a commission to subdue creation and bring it to order in God's kingdom. Notice too, God blessed them. His covenant of grace is to bring blessing to us. Watch out for that again, particularly when we get to Abraham. Then in Genesis 2, 
God gives Adam and Eve another instruction. He's already said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. Then he said to Adam, you may eat from every tree freely, from every tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That is the end of God's instructions. You say, well, that's not a lot to be getting on with in life. But I, don't you realize God made them to commune with them? So Adam would say, how do I do that then? You know, he'd be receiving wisdom and instruction from the Lord and growing in knowledge. Yeah, He wasn't, didn't have it all in his head to begin with, but he was going to get all that wisdom and understanding as he related to God the Father through Jesus. So the three things he told them, multiply, fill the earth with more image bearers, God wanted them to multiply and have a huge family, which became an even bigger family, until the earth was filled with image-bearing human beings. And subduing the earth as God's dedic authority, and don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't buy into the evil bit, because that will be the death of you. Now, historic covenant theology calls what God had with Adam the covenant of works. Well, Nowadays, a lot of us don't like that expression because no one's ever been in a covenant of works. Adam was in the covenant of grace. All God's dealings with Adam were, were of grace. Even the warning, don't eat of that, was gracious, wasn't it? It'll be the death of you. I'm warning you, don't do that, it'll be the death of you. Is that, is that judgmental? No, that's grace. How, do you, how many times do you say to your kids, please don't do that? Yeah? You're graciously trying to direct them to what's not harmful to them. I should also point out that God's creation of two genders, male and female, both in his image, is followed by his blessing upon them as a couple. In Genesis 2, we have the definition of marriage, which is repeated in the New Testament by Jesus himself in two of the Gospels and by Paul in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians. I can't accept any definition any definition of marriage other than this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This, too, was part of God's good creation, covenant and kingdom. But man rebelled against and rejected God as father and ruler. Genesis 3. We come to Genesis 3 and the fall of man. God rested on the seventh day and all that he'd made was very good. God delighted in the work of his hands. So at some time after the seventh day, this happened. In the grace of God, in in grace God had warned Adam not to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, but Eve was deceived by the servant. I haven't time to go into all of Genesis 3. You have to just get, bear with me here. Serpent turned up, said to her, has God said? And she kind of partly got right what God had said, partly missed the point. So he's, serpent is switching and ditching and sniding and suggesting. And deceit. Problem with, with deceit, it deceives you. You know? From this distance, what what Putin says to Russia obviously lies to us, but most Russians are deceived by Putin. Eve, being deceived, took 
the fruit and ate some and gave it also to Adam, who, it seems, was standing there. What was he doing? Why didn't he give a swipe at the serpent? Why didn't he grab her arm and pull her away? But when she took the fruit, she gave some to Adam. Ah! I don't know. Anyway, Eve was deceived, but Adam made a deliberate choice, and that point is raised in scriptures in the New Testament. She was deceived, he wasn't. He stood there and made a calm, or maybe a hectic or whatever, sweaty, I don't know, choice. And he broke covenant with God. In later covenants, Abraham and then Israel were promised the land, but Adam and Eve were promised the whole earth. They were to fill and subdue and rule over God's created order. But they left Eden by eviction, not by expansion. Man's fall was also creation's fall. No matter how beautiful some parts of God's creation are now, you know, uh, up in the highlands of Scotland and, or whatever, they're not altogether how he made it to be. He gave us responsibility for his creation to rule over it and to tend it like a gardener. Adam was the first gardener. I tried to be a gardener, but... You know. We failed then in Adam who was the head of the human race, the, the first man, first father of the human race. So what happened in him and through him is us too, because we're born of Adam. He failed, we failed then, and we continue to fail in God's given role even now. After the fall, God turns up in the garden, and it seems, as it seems was his custom. Let me read this to you. Then the man and his wife heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the breeze, or the Hebrew word there is ruach, which is spirit. And I'd like to explain that to you more, but there isn't time. Spirit of the day. And they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, Where are you? As if he didn't know. I heard your voice in the garden, Adam replied, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Who told you that you were naked? Asked the Lord God. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to, do, not to eat? The man answered, Oh, and you're in a hole, keep digging, Adam. The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. The blame game started there. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The serpent, she replied, deceived me, and I ate. Did you notice the Lord God was walking in the garden? It seems that Adam and Eve saw a physical appearance of God. Now guess who that was? Jesus. Because Jesus has in all time been the image of God in speaking and appearing to men. God the Father has been seen by no one at any time. John 1 verse 18, the only begotten God who is in the, in the side of the, at the side of the Father or literally in the chest of the Father, he has revealed him throughout all history. So if ever you see an appearance of God or the angel of the Lord and he's worshipped as God, it's Jesus even before the incarnation. Anyway, get off that subject, David, get back to this one. 
We'll come back to walking with God another time when we get to Noah and then to Abraham and maybe Enoch along the way. The Lord calls out Adam and Eve. He, of course, knows what they have done, why they are hiding from him. He calls Adam to account who blames Eve and seems to imply it's God's fault for making her. Yeah? The woman you gave me. And then he calls Eve to account, who, of course, blames the serpent. Well, truthfully. The Lord then declares judgment upon the serpent, Eve and Adam in that order. Put them on the screen for you. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and every beast of the field. On your belly will you go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Did the serpent have legs before then? Maybe, maybe it was more like a, more, more like a, you know, one of those dragon things that, you know, that, now, it was, now it was a snake, it was a serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. A seed there is offspring. He will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. Come back to that in a few minutes. To the woman, he said, I will sharply increase your pain in childbirth. Go back. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband. Most modern translations footnote that to, see, to say, actually the literal Hebrew is, you will desire to control your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, oh, get that one, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. Through toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, but thorns, both thorns and thistles it will yield for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your bread until you return to the ground, because out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. We're not bringing anybody this morning, but you know where that phrase comes from. Adam and Eve were then expelled from the Eden and the only entrance, which was on the east side, was guarded by cherubim and a swirling sword of flame. Cherubim in later scripture are scary heavenly beings who guard the presence of God from intruders. Adam and Eve were therefore cut off from the presence of the Lord, which they had perhaps only briefly enjoyed. I need to tell you that the sorrows of Adam and Eve only continued for having been evicted from the garden Adam sweating away as a farmer, Eve wrestling for the birth of children. When the first two children were grown, their eldest son, Cain, killed their second son, Abel. Genesis 4. Both of them made an offering to the Lord. And Cain was jealous because Abel's offering was accepted by the Lord, but his was not. And there's probably reasons behind that motive and so on. In grace, God warned Cain that if he didn't deal with his resentment and anger towards Abel, things would only get worse. In fact, here's the language that God used. Sin is crouching at your door. You must master it or we'll take hold of you. Isn't that the way of sin? You start here, but you end up there. But Cain ignored God's warning and deceptively led his brother away, killed him, and buried him. And I, I can't preach Genesis 4 to you, but have a read. So here's to summarize that incident. The first naturally born human being became the first degree murderer. 
Cain was called to account by the Lord, of course, and he was expelled from that family and from the presence of God. It literally says he was expelled from the presence of God. But already humanity was dividing into the godly and the ungodly, labeled in Scripture in the next few chapters as men or the sons of God. My notice says, let's go back to Genesis 3.15. Let's go back. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between you, the serpent and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, descendants or descendant. He will, because now it's a person. It's not them, it's he. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, anybody ever heard of the word proto-evangelium? It's Latin. It comes from Greek, which is... Very similar. It means the first declaration of the gospel. Almost every Bible scholar will tell you that is the first declaration of the gospel in the Bible. One day, someone born of the woman will crush the head of Satan. Is that good news? From that declaration... We begin to track God's plan of redemption and restoration, which includes the saving of fallen people, but also through who he would send, Jesus, the seed, the restoration of all things. All creation is to be brought back to it. The good order of God's creation, all of his creatures must be restored. All that God made and called good must again bear his order and reflect his glory. The people he made must again be his image bearers. How would it be brought about? The seed, a descendant of the woman would crush the head of the serpent while the serpent would strike the heel of that seed. Now, we we can imagine it working this way. The serpent serpent strikes at the heel. And as he does that, the heel crushes him. If you get crushed in the head, you're crushed, man. We usually call that a promise, but okay, you can call it that, but it's a a profound judgment upon the serpent, upon Satan, the enemy. Of course, at that point, it was going to be fulfilled many centuries later. We know that the man, the seed of the woman, interesting, without a human father, was Jesus. Satan struck the heel of Jesus, but that same heel came down and crushed his head. When did that happen? We know three particular battles in the life of Jesus. First of all, his trials in the wilderness after the baptism. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, and there he was tested by the devil. But he overcame him. And he overcame him by Scripture. Then when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives on the night in which he was betrayed, the night before he went to the cross, Satan's not directly mentioned there, but there's a dark battle going on. And in fact, it's the battle, he's winning the battle that Adam lost. He's in a garden making a choice. Do I do this or do I honor God? Do I do this or do I, do, do, do I, do I, do I call out to God for help? Adam failed, Jesus won. And then the third battle was at the cross. At the cross of Golgotha, Satan threw everything he could at Jesus, but Jesus overcame him and overthrew him. Sin, Satan, and death defeated. We're at the cross. Now think about this. Going through quicker than I thought it would. <laughs> Grace was not the divine response to the fall. God did not say, Oh, my, oh, look at that. They've gone and fallen. They've become rebels. They've become covenant brave. What are we going to do? 
Grace preceded the fall. You see, we see things in a timely, linear way. You see, you can't go back and fix yesterday and you can't sort out tomorrow. All you've got is this moment. Now, this moment. Yeah? That's all we live in. We're like gnats. But God is eternal. Before the beginning, after the end, to use an old English expression they still use in Scotland, he's out with time, beyond time. So the Bible tells us about in the beginning, God made the heaven and earth. Well, that's the beginning because before that we couldn't, have, we couldn't reckon time, could we? When God made something, you could start to reckon time. There's matter, there's, there's physics at work, there's movement, there's, you know, when he creates light, light starts moving around. You can measure light, light moving and measure time by that. But when there was nothing, there was God. God made the cosmos and this earth out of nothing. But God was the before the beginning. So here's what the thing. Scripture in places challenges us by telling us that some things happened that we might suppose are because of this or before that or after that. But actually, God made that choice, that decision, formed that plan even before he made the world. I'm going to put them up on the screen for you. All right? I think there's six of them, isn't there? Yeah. Jesus in John's Gospel says the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. Well, we can get around that. That's the Trinity, the Father loving the Son within the Trinity before he made the world. Yeah, fine, okay. But then Hebrews 4 says all his works were finished from the foundation of the world. God isn't making any new plans. He's got anything, any, any more thing, things to pull out because he's, they were all determined. They hadn't been enacted in time, but you see, God is not, God not in time. The eternal God made eternal plans which were now being acted in time. Then it gets to more stuff about us. And this is where your pride might be pricked. Good. Christ, the Lamb of God, was foreknown, which means chosen, chosen or appointed, not just, not just foreseen. It's, it's about chosen and appointed. Before the foundation of the world, says Peter. Before God made the world, he appointed Jesus to be the Savior of fallen people. Got that one? How about this? We were chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 verse 4. God did not choose you on the basis of anything you ever were going to do. He gave you to Jesus, not just before you were born, just before Adam was made, not even just before the foundation of the world. He made you and chose you in his mind in eternity. Way back before there was any when. No, before time. Another one. Three times in Revelation, it says, sorry, twice in Revelation, it says, my names were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world that belonged to the Lamb who was slain. And in fact, that's a tricky verse because it says, is it before the foundation about, about the writing or about the Lamb being slain? But kind of in a way, both are true. Because Jesus was appointed to be the Lamb who would be sacrificed and the book was recorded before the world was made. God knew those who would be his and chose them to be his before he made the world. Oh, how does that make you feel? 
humbled, humbled and wow at the same time. Is that's what grace does to you? It makes you go oh oh. You kind of go oh I can't do anything. Oh I'm saved. I'm rescued. Jesus promised us that we will inherit the kingdom prepared for us from the foundation of the world. The kingdom in its final, complete fullness when Jesus comes and restores all things. We have an inheritance that, and that inheritance has been promised us from the foundation of the world. It's been prepared for us since then. The, word, the world was founded before Adam was made. So anyway, the gospel was not God's plan B after Adam's fall or anything else. It was all foreordained, foreknown, pre-planned in the wisdom of the eternal Lord. And the covenants of God tracked through scriptures and arriving at their fulfillment in the person of Jesus, his son, are building blocks towards his kingdom being restored over all things. And if you read through the epistles, pick up when Paul says that. All things, all things, all things. Absolutely all creation. Romans 8. The creation's groaning for the revealing of the sons of God, and we get to be what God actually made us to be. Creation gets conformed. Now here's this. If you go through the genealogy in Luke, Luke chapter 3 of Jesus in Luke 3, it starts with uh, Jesus was the son of Joseph, as supposed, and then the son of and the son of. And so on. You keep going down through Abraham. And, so on. and you get to the end there, and it says, it says the son of Seth the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, I want to tell you something. That's not saying Jesus is the son of God. This is smallest. Adam was the son of God. God made Adam to be a faithful son, smallest, human being son. But Jesus is the son of God from before the foundation of the world, from all eternity, the uncreated son. The begotten but uncreated son. Remember we sing that at Christmas? Begotten, not created. So in time, because the first son was a covenant breaker, Jesus, the eternal son, became the son of God on earth. And he was the faithful son. And he came and obeyed and endured all things to do what Hebrews says, he's the faithful son in the father's house. And further on it says, he, he came and suffered and endured all things to bring many sons to glory. Adam, the son of God, failed. Jesus, the eternal son of God, became the son of God on earth. A human being, the, the, the only second real human being would come down the moment. Adam was the first real human being, an image bearer. Jesus was the only the second real human being. The rest of us have been failures ever since. And he succeeded where Adam failed, was faithful to the Father in everything. And so three, his life and death and resurrection, he has made eternal salvation and he's bringing many sons to glory. So we can be called sons of God and the scriptures are full of references to being sons of God and children of God. Just to add two more here. Romans 5, long argument. We are no longer in Adam. If you're in Jesus, you're no longer in Adam. You don't, you're not in, in both of them. Oh, I'm a bit in Adam, a bit in Jesus. No. If you belong to Jesus, you no longer belong to Adam's fall. You're a new creation. Thank you, John. 
You're, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You're part of the new creation. All creation, all things is still going to be worked out. But right now, you have become a child of God. You're a new creation. You're part of a new creation. I'm going to skip the scriptures there. You can read them in the notes or look them up later. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians 15 as well. Resurrection in Jesus to eternal life, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians takes us to the last day of resurrection and restoration. In there, there there's, this, there's some interesting phrases that come up. Jesus is called the second man, which I've just talked about a bit. And then he's called the last Adam. You think, hang on, don't we mean the last man? And, and I, you know, sometimes I've thought, I've got that wrong, or the scripture's got that wrong. Why, how could I think the scripture's got it wrong? But anyway, I've got it wrong. No. Jesus is the second man and the last Adam. The first Adam was earthly. The second man has come from heaven to be the second man. He's a heavenly man. But Jesus is the last Adam because remember the covenants I listed up earlier? Every one of those covenant partners was like another Adam, another start, another restart in God's process of bringing redemption, bringing salvation. Jesus is the last restart of the human race because now this is it. This is what goes to the end of time. The last Adam fulfilled all the faith and obedience to God that the first Adam and the first man failed in. So all belong to Jesus, belong to heaven, and will be raised to eternal life and bear his likeness and inherit the earth. From eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were joined in, as one in love, unity, and purpose. And God made the heaven and the earth, and after that he created light and the heavens and sea and land and plant life and sun and moon and stars and animal life. Then God made man in his image, to be his image bearer, to have authority and rule, to not be, not be, be under someone else's rule, but to, to rule under God, to serve in his presence. We were made by God for three relationships and responsibilities. The one between God and us, between ourselves and other people, and between us and his creation. You think, Pastor David's gone green. No, his Bible's always been green. We have a duty towards creation, to tend it like a gardener. But man rebelled against God. That's why we are what we are now, and where we are where we are now. They, that's why this world is a mess. Thank you for your prayers, Colin. But this world is a mess. Because we are all born of fallen Adam and gone the way of Cain. Every person on this planet is either in Adam, lost, dead, in sin, or in Christ, made alive again to God through him. There's no in-between. You belong to Christ or you don't. You belong to Adam, and if you belong to Adam, you don't belong to Jesus. To be in Adam is not a way of life, it's a way of death. The only true way of life is to be in and to belong to Jesus. And through the gospel, the Lord calls the whole earth to trust his son, to believe and obey him. Those who do so are saved from sin and death, which Jesus defeated the cross. If you're in Christ, you're no longer in Adam. You're accepted, forgiven. And you're not finished, I know, neither am I. But you are being restored and remade towards the kind of life we were originally made for. Let me just highlight that for you. 
The life we were made for, knowing God, walking with God, being his image bearers, dependent upon him for all things, provision, wisdom, rejoicing in his goodness and love, having authority under his authority, being priests of the Lord, serving him and blessing others. By the way, three times in Revelation it says we are a kingdom of priests. Christians are a kingdom of priests. Treating others as we would wish to be treated. Stewards of all God has made and has given to us. We're moving by the grace of God towards the finished work towards the finished work of through the finished work of Jesus and the continuing work of the Spirit towards the end of his covenant of grace the restoration of all things including the entire remaking of our physical beings and our planet. When this age of the gospel has run its course the Lord Jesus will return we will be raised and transformed to enter into his renewed creation. It will again all be good. We will live in the presence of God on a renewed earth. The closing chapters of Revelation do not picture us as, as spirits in heaven. It does earlier, because that's a different time. But as the Lord's people in resurrection bodies, living on a remade planet, in community with one another, in the very presence of God, living under the light of his face. So being a Christian is not a small addition to your way of life, people. If you belong to the Lord, you no, belong, you no longer belong to this fallen, corrupt, violent world. You're a child, a son of God. You're a part of his eternal purpose, a partner, a participant. Your life is held in the hands of Almighty God. As Moses says, the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. We're going, to, we're going to pray and then have communion, all right? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came as the second man, the last Adam, to undo all that was done there in Eden. Every bit of covenant breaking you have remade, you have fulfilled, you have paid for, you have reworked, so that we now enter through you into the new covenant, which we're weeks away from looking at, but never mind. But we thank you, Father, that your covenant of grace was formed in your mind before you even made the world. And even where our names were written down by you, if we belong to you. Thank you, Father. Let me just stop a moment there and say, if you don't belong to Jesus, I can't put this strong enough, run to him, fall on him, jump on him, take a hold of him, say, Jesus, make me yours. Make me yours. Let me belong to you. Don't, don't kind of dally around with that one. Don't, don't th- I'll have to think about it someday. Think about it right now and decide what you're going to do. Whether to turn to him or not, please do that.